Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Reality uh, Santa Barbara, and we are right now wrapping up what has been about a five-week series through Lent, observing the season of Lent, but also learning as a church for the first time in our history how to practice Lent. Uh, and we're now at the end of this, this season of Lent together as a church, and perhaps that line that James read from the, the Apostle Paul in the middle of his exhortation is providing for you uh, a bit of a, a vivid metaphor for what we have been doing together, what the Christian life is, what we've intentionally been doing in Lent through fasting, through stripping away the noise, through generosity. And that is what Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with its passions and with its desires. This is exactly what we've been practicing together, what we've been looking at. What is fasting but crucifying uh, passions and desires in order to lay hold of something that's better? What is stripping away the noise but to leave aside something that's distracting in order to hear from the voice of God? What is generosity but giving what we don't need in order to bless somebody else? Or not just to bless somebody else but to receive the presence and the gift and the, uh, the mercies of God to be attentive to him in the middle of all that noise. So those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're at the end of that season together. Of course, Lent is the, isn't the only time that we do that. That is the Christian life. We've just been focusing uh, deeply on the practice of that. And perhaps at the end of these five weeks, you're asking yourself this, or you might be new here today. This might be your first time. And you're still asking this question of the spiritual life. How do I know it's working? How do I know that I'm growing? How do I know that there's change? How do I know that there's transformation? How do I know that I haven't wasted that wilderness how do I know that I haven't wasted uh, the, the season of Lent in which I've, I've torn myself from something in order to experience something better? How do I know that it's working? Uh, and some of the, the things that we might fill in the blanks with, some of the ways that we might answer that are manifold. Some of you might say, I know I'm growing because I, I'm, I'm growing in knowledge. I know a lot about the Bible. I'm learning a lot. I know right answers from wrong answers. There might be some other people in the room that would say it's not knowledge, it's not information, but rather it's, it's activity and productivity. I, I am busy for the kingdom of God. I'm active in ministry, I'm serving, I'm doing stuff. I think that's how I know that I'm growing. I think that's how I know that there's real change. And the list is endless, but perhaps... Uh, one of those two is where you might mark the checkbox. I know that I'm growing because I know a lot of stuff about the Bible. I know that I'm growing because I'm doing a lot of stuff that the Bible says. And here's the problem with that. The problem with knowledge and productivity is that they're not the whole picture. And you can do either one of those things. You can know a lot about God and still not allow that knowledge to go deep down into your heart where it actually matters. You can be busy for the kingdom of God and still not even know God, as Jesus would say in the Gospels. The problem with growth is that it, is, it, it includes knowing things about God. It includes being obedient to God, but it also encapsulates so much more. I think of the story in John chapter 5, verse 39, when Jesus is speaking to a bunch of, of Jewish religious professionals. Think of scribes and Pharisees. 
If this were the modern day, it would be like New Testament professors and seminary professors uh, and presidents of Christian colleges. And he's in a, a crowd of people like this, and he's, he, he's pointing out their flaws. He's pointing out a disconnect between what they know and who they are. In other words, in, in, that, in that day and age, among the Jewish people, there, were, there was nobody in the land of Israel who knew more about the scriptures than a Pharisee or a scribe. They were professional Bible knowledge people. Uh, it was said that by the, by the time you were 11 years old, you had more. If you were on track to become a Pharisee, you had memorized the first five books of our Bibles. So for them, it was the whole Bible, the Hebrew Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. By, by the time you, you, were, you weren't even a teenager, by the time you were 14, you celebrated that kind of right into passage uh, into manhood, it was expected that if you were on track to become a Pharisee, you would have plenty more than the first five books of the Bible memorized. You would have a lot of the other books memorized as well as Old Testament commentary. They knew more about the scriptures than anybody else in the land of Israel. And yet Jesus would look at this group of people and he would say, you study the scriptures. Uh, John chapter 5, I think verse 39. You study the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But the scriptures are about me. In other words, there is a disconnect between their knowledge of God and the real change and growth going on in, uh, on the inside. And if you read the Gospels, you see Jesus just picking on the Pharisees over and over. Well intended, well deserved. Because even though they know so much about the things of God, they're usually the ones that are abusing people. They're the ones that have put a burden, to, put, to use Jesus' words, to have put a burden on other people and have not lifted a finger to help them. They're the ones that prey on widows in their homes. Uh, they're arrogant. They think only about themselves. And he's pointing out that disconnect. You can know a lot of stuff. You can have data in your mind. And your heart can remain unchanged. You know what that means? You need more than just a sermon from Chris Lazo once a week. That's just not enough. I hope it does something. Like, I'm, I'm working hard here. I hope, I, I hope I'm giving you like a little jump start for your Monday. But if this, if this is the only thing going for you, if, if you're just a podcast Christian, information will not save you. Information may jumpstart you. It might send you off in the right direction. But you need something deeper, more well-seated. Knowledge is not growth per se. Some of you might say, well, what about productivity? I'm involved in missions. I go to prayer meetings. I'm a part of this ministry. I volunteer every week of my, every day of my week is filled with like Christian activity. I'm doing stuff for the kingdom. That's awesome. But does that mean, is that your measurement? Is that the measurement we should use for our spiritual growth? I'm busy for God. How many of you have been busy for God? How many of you have gotten to a place in your life where even though you were busy for God, you were also burning out for God? And you've heard the words of Jesus just kind of hauntingly reminding you, what, what's, what's the point of gaining the whole world if you're losing your soul? We can be productive for God. We can be doing great things, filling our lives with good activity and still not growing. I think of the passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 40. When Mary and Martha actually have, they have a wonderful task in front of them. They're going to throw a dinner party for the Son of God. No big deal. 
They got a dinner party. Jesus is coming to their house. They're getting everything ready. And there's this scene in the passage where Martha is just sweating up a storm. She's doing the dishes. She's getting the tuna casserole ready. She's getting everything worked out. She's got the fine silverware laid out and the linens. And she's sweating up a storm and she's frustrated. She's frazzled. She looks over and she sees her sister Mary, or uh, she sees Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, who's kind of waiting for dinner to happen, I guess, sitting at the feet of Jesus and just receiving from him. And Martha just gets, she gets reactive. And she says to Jesus, why don't you rebuke her and, and tell her to help me with the preparations? And Jesus' response to her is one that shows us that productivity is not the only thing that measures spiritual growth. In fact, Jesus says, hey, don't rebuke, don't rebuke Mary. She's discovered the one thing that matters. You've missed it. It's possible to be doing all the right things in the, uh, just a lot of spiritual busyness and still miss the one thing that matters. So we might point to knowledge. We might point to productivity. And yet you can know a lot about God and do a lot for God and still miss it. This was my story. Many years ago, uh, as a, a professional pastor preaching the Bible all the time and knowing a lot about the Bible and doing ministry, there was still a season in my life early on where I felt my soul was emaciated. I felt like I was, I was doing the right things and knowing the right things and yet growing farther and farther away from God. Uh, and there was a point in my life where I had to face that. It was almost like a wall that I had hit saying, I must be missing something. The sign of growth goes beyond knowing stuff. It goes beyond just being active for God. The Bible puts it simply. It says you should look for the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know what the sign of true growth is, look beyond what you know and what you're doing, even though all of that is important, and look deeper for the fruit of the Spirit. I love that metaphor because it's so true. We have trees in Santa Barbara County. They're called avocado trees, and they are from the kingdom of heaven. And there's a few lucky, I, I heard some amens there. It's the most amens I got in like the past four weeks. It's awesome. And these things are incredible. I, I, I've, I've been uh, across the country. I remember going to the East Coast and ordering a sandwich. And I saw on the menu it was advertised avocado. So I ordered it. I didn't get avocado. I got what looked like green toothpaste in a plastic canister. It just made me love and appreciate Santa Barbara County. I love avocados. Uh, and there are a few lucky people in this room who happen to have an avocado tree on their property. You know who you are. I know who you are. You have avocado trees in your backyard, and they, they rain down the blessings of heaven. If you do not appreciate that, I need you to come talk to me afterwards so that I can teach you about gratitude and how the kingdom of God is unleashing itself in your backyard. You need to tap into that source. But how many of you, if you had an avocado tree in your backyard and it didn't give you any fruit, would be frustrated rightfully? There's something we intuitively expect. That's why I love how Paul uses stuff that we would understand. Even though we're not farmers, we don't, you know, we don't do this professionally, we understand if there's an avocado tree in my backyard that doesn't give avocados, I'm really frustrated about my property right now. Do you know what an avocado tree that doesn't give avocados is? Or a fruit tree that doesn't give fruit trees uh, fruit is? It's a palm tree. It's a palm tree. 
A palm tree is the most frustrating thing to me. Everybody loves palm trees. Everybody thinks of palm trees. They think of the tropics. I think they are meaningless and frustrating because they don't offer you anything. They don't look good. They look like a dirty toothpick just shooting out of the ground. The most beautiful part of the palm tree is five stories up. You have to crane your neck like this to look at it. There's no branches to hang a nice little swing on. You can't hang your laundry on it. Uh, The only beautiful part are those palm fronds, which are five feet long and fall like daggers from the heavens. There's no fruit. You can't eat anything from it. The only thing that falls from the palm tree next to my house are these little pellets, and they fall like BBs. It's almost like someone's in the sky just shooting me with BBs. I don't like palm trees. And their only, their only redemptive factor, so I'm told, is that they can withstand a hurricane. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Imagine being told that. There's nothing redeemable about my life except that I'm really stubborn, you know. I think part of my subtle, hidden frustration with palm trees is that they take up a lot of space and they don't do anything. Here's what the Bible says about you to carry on that metaphor. If you're in Christ, you are not a palm tree. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, I have appointed you. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you would bear fruit. I want you to hear that. You're not a palm tree, Christian. Christ, before you were born, chose you appointed you that you would be the bearer of fruit. This is not your choice. When God created you, he already had visions of how you would be fruitful. And so Paul, carrying on this metaphor, tells uh, the saints, tells the people that are following Christ, that the way that you can see signs of growth in your life is to look for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Some of you might be familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. You might even be able to recite them, maybe from Sunday school or uh, some Bible class. Uh, But you might not know what each of them means. I want to slow down for a minute and talk about each one of the fruits of the Spirit, starting with love. Love is, if you you think of the uh, the way that Jesus terms it, or excuse me, one of Jesus' disciples, John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says it. He says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for us as a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, love, it's already starting to take on flesh and bones. What is love? Love is divine, agape love. It is a love that blesses the other sometimes at its own expense. In fact, Jesus loved you, according to this passage, according to the story of the Bible, without any guarantee that you would love him back. So as our working definition of the fruit of the Spirit, what is love? Love is being committed to someone's highest good without any guarantee of reciprocity and sometimes at great expense to yourself. That's love. You may say, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, if you look at the rest of the fruit of the Spirit... You see that those are extensions of love. So if you have what the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, it's safe to say that you have love. Let's talk about the others. What is joy? Joy is delight in God that enables you to move forward in life. In other words, it's not a mere emotion. I'm not talking about happiness or elation. Those are good things, but they're usually tied to good circumstances, right? When the day is good, you're happy. But notice that there's, there's somehow people in life 
There's people in our church who can go through a lot of garbage and still have joy. They recall the words of the, of the Bible, the joy is the Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's that which enables you to go forward. It's a sheer delight in God. That's why I've, I've spoken to people that have battled cancer that are sad and still have joy. I've spoken to people that are uh, separated or uh, uh, estranged from family members. They're sad, but they're still empowered by joy. Joy is not merely an emotion, but it is a spiritual fruit that is delight in God enabling you to move forward. And you know you have joy if you're able to consistently enjoy God's presence even when circumstances are bad. That's when you know joy's starting to sink in. Peace. What's peace? Peace is the ability to endure difficult situations without melting down, okay? It's the ability to endure difficult situations or people without melting down. Now, I'm not here when I speak about peace. I have peace. I'm not, I'm not speaking here about indifference. That might be what's, what we sometimes have. When situations are difficult, when people are difficult, we just turn our backs and ignore it. I'm indifferent. I'm just going to lock myself off of that. The person with peace is actually engaged and connected to the difficult situation. They're just held down by something stronger. They have confidence and rest. Excuse me, that, uh, I just gave the definition to patience. Peace is confidence and rest in God's control rather than your own. Confidence and rest in God's control rather than your own. So if you have peace, you know you have peace because you have the ability to be non-reactive and connected in the midst of chaos. You don't run from it. You don't skirt away from it. You don't avoid it. You don't give people the silent treatment. You don't see that person in the church that you hate and you don't want to talk to and you sit on the other side of the room because you don't know how to deal with it. Peace allows you to be connected to the situation, even the anxious ones. It gives you confidence and rest because you know that God is in control rather than yourself. When everything around you is being torn apart, you can trust that God is in control and that gives you a sense of well-being. Patience, this is uh, the definition I gave accidentally. This is what patience is. It's the ability to endure difficult situations or people without melting down. Patience is that part of the fruit of the Spirit that a lot of us get to, and we're like really vibing with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. Yeah, I want all of that. We get to patience. We're like, skip that one. <laughs> like, who, who wakes up on a Monday morning and they're like, I want to be more patient, right? I want to be more patient. Because patience for a lot of us means to not get our way, to allow people to steamroll us and walk over us, and for us to just bite our bottom lip. And what happens when we do that? It results in resentment. We start, hating, we start hating the situation and maybe even the people. That's not patience. Patience is much more powerful. It's the ability to endure difficult situations without melting down. It's the ability. When Target is opening uh, on Sunday in April and it actu they actually do a soft opening on the second, you're not bitter over it. <laughs> this guy. Patience, the ability to endure difficult situations without melting down. How do you know that you have it? It's pretty self-explanatory. You can go into any situation and still be okay. Kindness. Kindness is the willingness to serve others in a way that is costly and vulnerable. 
You can give generously of yourself, of your resources, of your time, of your energy, of your giftings. Uh, I've found that I sometimes think I'm being kind, but I'm actually being manipulative. This is a counterfeit of kindness, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, it's those moments where I'm giving something to someone else, I'm, I'm being vulnerable, I'm opening up, I'm giving them the best that I have to offer, but it's really because I want something in return from them. Uh, even if that just means I want to be liked by them. I want to be on the inside of that particular group of people. I want them to pay me back. I want to pay it forward so that they can pay me back. Uh, I'm manipulative rather than kind. You know that uh, you, you are experiencing kindness when you start to feel a sense of detachment for what you used to believe was yours. It starts to be a little less yours. All of a sudden, you're like, I don't, you know, I, I love my alone time, but I'm, I'm a little less attached to it now. I want to bring other people into my life. Uh, I love my, my home. It's my safe place. You know, that's where I go to be by myself, but... I just feel this pull in my life to open my doors, maybe bring somebody else, maybe be a little more hospitable. I, I, I'm really protective over my stuff. That could be my money or my things, uh, but I'm, I'm feeling more like I want to share it with other people for no other reason. You get this general detachment for what's yours and a willingness to bless people around you. Kindness. What's goodness? Goodness is... Another word for goodness is integrity. It's being the same person no matter what. You just don't change. You're the same person in this room as you are behind the scenes in your room. You're the same person at work as you are in church. You're just the same person. There's a consistency to your character. You have integrity. And what I mean by, by this is not that you are stubborn and inflexible. Because that's a counterfeit to goodness. That's the person that says, I'm the way that I am, and I don't care if anybody doesn't like it. You can just get over it or go somewhere else. This is how I am. And maybe the way that you are is as far from goodness as possible. Maybe you're a jerk, you know, but you're like, I'm going to remain the way, you know, people can change. Yeah, I'm not kids these days. That's not goodness. That's just being stubborn and inflexible. Goodness is being the same person no matter what also tied in with the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And you know that you're growing in goodness when you start growing in the ability to maintain your principles and values while in a resistant environment. Have any of you in this church ever experienced this where you've grown not only older, but you've also grown more mature? You've grown spiritually, and God is developing you. And then at Thanksgiving, you go home to your biological family, and... <laughs> And you find yourself asking, like, why am I acting like the 14-year-old that I used to be right now? Why am I, amen, why am I reverting to, like, the same old patterns, the destructive ones? Maybe it's not your biological family. Maybe it's work. Maybe you're in church, you're in a Bible study, and you're learning to stand on God's truth and stand for the gospel and grow in all of these areas of love, and you go back into your job situation and uh, those same old cultural values. Maybe it's unethical ones. Maybe people are just cutthroats and they're mean. Maybe uh, you have a way of relating to your coworkers that is not biblical. Uh, you just kind of fall back into that pattern. Goodness is the ability to be the same person. Good. At all times. What's faithfulness? 
Faithfulness is a simple one. That's just being reliable and trustworthy. Uh, we can count on you. You can count on people that are faithful. Uh, it's, you know that you're growing in faithfulness when you have the courage to follow through after being presented with an easy way out. In other words, when you know the right thing to do, you will do it. Even when there's an opportunity to cut corners, even when it's unpopular. Now, a counterfeit to faithfulness is that you are insensitive. You just steamroll people. You're like a bulldozer. I'm going to do whatever I want because it's the right thing to do. And you, and you look back and you see a sea of bodies behind you who've been hurt by you. Faithfulness is the courage to follow through after being presented with an easy way out. A counterfeit to that is that we're just mean. Uh, gentleness. You might get to gentleness and you, th- and you might think of weakness. This might be uh, one of the other, you know, one of those fruits of the spirits like patience that you're like, I'll pass on that one. I don't really like that one. I don't want to be gentle. You might think of weakness or again being uh, mowed over by type A personalities. That's not what gentleness is at all. Uh, The word that Paul uses for gentleness means something like this, to be clear and firm without also being harsh. In other words, it is a type of quiet power. You are able to be who you are. You are able to speak the truth without lashing out. You know that you're growing in gentleness when you're able to say something true and challenging without being emotionally reactive. You're calm. You're connected. As opposed to defensive. And the last one is self-control. This might be, in my estimation, the third one that we would rather do away with. We want more joy. We might even want to be good but we don't necessarily want to be patient or have self-control. Self-control is a virtue, my dad always used to say. And then he'd jokingly with a half grin say, and it's one that I don't have. And he'd walk off. Self-control, who actually wants it? Uh, I wonder if that's because we have a marred, distorted view of what self-control actually is. Perhaps what you're thinking of is, I don't get to do all of the things that I want to do. Again, I have to let people uh, get their way and take advantage of me and not say anything about it. It couldn't be further from the truth. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent every time. Think of what you're doing when you're fasting. You're putting aside the urgent, food, drink, in order to achieve or lay a hold of the important intimacy with God, Uh, Think of what's happening for those of you that chose to fast from news or social media or television. You're you're putting aside something that's actually pretty good. You're putting aside uh, maybe even something that's urgent. I need to hear what's going on in the world. What's happening in the badlands of Ohio? I must know the trending news. You're, you're You're putting aside the urgent for the important. To be quiet before God and to listen to what he has to say. What are we doing when we're being generous? We're, we're releasing our stuff, our time, our energy, our resources for what? To share the love of God with other people. Not just spiritual fruit either. You might have goals. Self-control entails that you are pursuing what actually matters, the important, over the urgent. Entertaining yourself uh, on YouTube. Or distracting yourself with other things. You have to be self-controlled. Self-control is behind important decisions. 
Self-control is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent. And you know that you have it because you have this growing ability to restrain yourself from what you previously depended on. So there's the fruit of the Spirit in a nutshell with some light explanation. It's being committed to someone's highest good without any guarantee of reciprocity, sometimes even at your own expense. It's a delight in God that drives you forward. It's confidence and rest in God's control rather than your own. It's the ability to endure difficult situations and difficult people without melting down. It's the willingness to serve others in a way that is costly and vulnerable. It's being the same person no matter what happens. It's being reliable, trustworthy, clear, and firm without also being harsh. And it's the ability to uh, pursue that which is important in your life over simply the urgent and the fleeting, the fruit of the Spirit. I want that. I want to be that. And when Paul describes this not simply as fruit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, He's letting, us, he's letting us onto something. He's hinting us, at, uh, he's giving us a hint at something. That this is not something that is born by natural means, but it comes from above. It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit inside the believer. This is important because, it, because our inclination sometimes, my inclination sometimes is to, uh, to kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps and make some of these happen. And perhaps that's yours too. Give, me a, give you a little experiment. How many of you, as I was listing off the fruit of the Spirit, were making mental check marks on the ones you had and the ones you didn't have? How many of you, as you were doing it, how many of you, as you were doing that, were reasoning to yourself, well, it's okay. I got a couple. I don't have like seven, but I have like two. That's cool. How many of you are like, you know, I'm faithful. I'm like... You know, I'm powerful, I'm courageous, I tell people what's up, I get it done at work. I'm not very gentle. When I get things done, I tend to steamroll people that are in my path and leave them in tears. But whatever, I'm faithful, right? Uh, Here's the problem with thinking like that, is that Paul, it's almost like Paul knew this. Because when he says the fruit of the Spirit, he uses the Greek word sarks, and he uses it in the singular form. Here's why that matters. Paul is speaking of the singular fruit of the Spirit. He's not speaking about the nine different fruits of the Spirit. In other words, this is not a buffet line of different fruits and vegetables, you know, at Tri-County Produce that you can pick and choose. Paul is saying, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, you must grow in all of them. That is the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in the Christian's life. And it's daunting, right? Now, here's the problem. If I were to say, I am, you know, I think I'm growing in one. I hate all the other ones. I'm a faithful person. I get things done, but I just hurt everybody in my path. And frankly, I don't care. Well, that's not faithfulness. Um, you're just mean. In fact, if it's not the fruit of the Spirit, you might actually be describing simply your natural framework and wiring. You're just highlighting your natural tendencies. I'm a type A personality. I'm mean. I bulldoze people. I can't manage my emotions when I'm around others. That's not faithfulness. That's just personality traits. Or maybe it's the flip side of that. Maybe you're like, I'm so gentle. I care about people's feelings. Uh, I'm empathetic. But I don't like conflict. I don't want to engage in conflict. I avoid it as often as possible, and I just have a really hard time speaking truth into situations because I'm afraid of what other people think. Well, that's not gentleness either. 
when I've done that in my life, that was cowardice. Paul makes absolutely clear. All of these are the same, of, are a part of one singular fruit. It's almost like a diamond that has multiple facets around it. The facets are connected to the diamond, but they all show a different facet of what that diamond is, but it's still one diamond. In the same way, the fruit of the Spirit, those nine traits, are like facets of the inner work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you're abiding in Christ and He's having His way with you, you will start to notice growth in all of those areas. The fruit of the Spirit, then, is really just a detailed explanation of what Jesus described as the greatest thing that you and I could ever do. When he was asked, he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Read into that. The best way that you could live, the best way that you can move forward is to learn how to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. The fruit of the Spirit, then, is just a more detailed explanation of what that would look like in you. That's why Paul would go on to say what, what kind of sounds like an awkward phrase here. Against the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. Scholars are uh, mixed up on that phrase, but most of them think it, it means that the fruit of the Spirit are so transcendent from our natural abilities and resources, there's no law against them. There's nothing we can use to describe them, to control them. There's also nothing we could do to attain them. It must be given to you from God. And that's the good news, is the, good, the giver of every perfect gift that Paul said to Timothy. God, our Father of lights in heaven, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Jesus described the Father in Luke as like, a, as like a father, but an even better father. He said, if our dads, even though they mess up all the time sometimes and are evil, still know how to give us basic good gifts, how much more will the Father who is perfect give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? It is God's intent to give you the Holy Spirit and the subsequent fruit of the Spirit. It is His desire, and it is supernatural. It is not simply an Enneagram number. It is not simply a personality trait. It is not something that, something that you can take an online test and grow in more. It is something that the Spirit of God unleashes in your life that you take a hold of and start to grow in. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit in a person is like the kingdom of God invading an individual person in the room. As you're growing, you're seeing the kingdom of heaven drop down into your sphere of influence. You're seeing the kingdom of God in an individual way through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere do we see this more vividly than in Jesus Christ himself. You may be asking, what's a way forward? How do, how do, we, how do we walk in this? You might even feel deflated. Maybe you're looking at this list and you're like, okay, I was feeling confident because I have one of these or two of these, but I don't have all of these, and it seems impossible. And I want to give you three ways forward today before we sing together. But before we do it, we have to start with this assumption that the Spirit of God is the one working in the lives of His people. Before it was ever your desire to change, it was God's desire to transform your life. 
before you ever sought him out and wanted transformation in your life, God saw you before eternity. He saw you and he had good works planned for your life. He saw you even, he, he saw even before they happened, all the stuff that you would run into, all the walls that you would encounter, all the mistakes and the mess ups and the sin that has plagued your life, and it still did not deter him. He said, I have created you in Christ Jesus from the beginning of time for good works that you might walk in them. So if you belong to Christ, he is already working to change you. Philippians chapter 2 says that God is working and willing in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. He's already stirring up that in you. So if you're even sitting here in one of these green chairs in the Santa Barbara High School Theater saying, gosh, I want that, that is already the work of the Lord. If you even have a glimpse, like I'm missing out on something, I want that, take that as a sign that God is already moving on your life and step into his movement in your life. It's going to be good. Who doesn't want to be the type of person who can go through anything without melting down? Who doesn't want to be the type of person who's kind? Who doesn't want to be the type of person that can give generously, who's kind, without, uh, without fear of lack? That's what kindness is. You, you, don't, you don't have lack. You don't have to manipulate people. You don't have to self-preserve. You have an abundance, and it's out of that abundance that you're able to give. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. That's the life of a Christian. Is it any wonder that later the psalmist would say, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I used to read that verse and think, it's so that I can gloat. God is preparing a feast before me and that my enemies, all of whom I hate, are sitting in the nosebleeds and they're looking at me eating. Yes, take that. But everywhere in the Bible where you see Jesus speaking about enemies, they seem to be invited to the table. It's almost as if he's preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies because he's going to use you out of the abundance that he has poured into your life to change people, even the ones that you don't get along with. This is the kingdom of God touching down into an individual person's life, the fruit of the spirit. Who doesn't want to live that way? Who doesn't want to have so much joy on the inside that you can face cancer, that you can face a broken family, that you can face a bad economy and still not be rattled because something is rattling you. Something is anchoring you. First thing that we should do is with that assumption. God wants to work in your life more than you want him to work in your life. I think we should start with this. We should start with celebration. We should celebrate the growth that is already happening. Maybe you don't even know it right now. Maybe you feel so defeated, so discouraged. Maybe every Sunday morning you come into this church and you see people with smiles on their face doing the thing and they have the knowledge and they're doing the productive thing. And you're like, I'm not like that. I can barely keep my marriage together. My kids hate me. My job is terrible. I, I, I don't even understand the words in the Bible that I'm reading. Prayer is hard and you feel deflated. But I'll bet if you slow down for a second and looked at your life and said, is there growth? I'll bet the Holy Spirit would show you that he is, in fact, working in your life. Amen. Some of you that have been going through this Lent season with us, it's just been five weeks. I'll bet if you were to stop today 
and look back at the five weeks and start pinpointing this stuff and say, am I, am I more gentle than I used to be? Or am I more loving than I used to be? Am I more joyful? I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about perfection. You don't need to compare yourself with other people. You don't need to achieve perfection. But is there change? Is there change? I'll bet if some of you were to slow down, you would be able to celebrate the real growth that God is bringing into your life. You might be able to say, I do have a little more joy than I used to. I'm a little bit more patient with my kids, with my coworkers, with my boss. We should celebrate the growth. The second thing that we should do is to surrender those weak links. We should celebrate where we're growing in, but we should take where we're not growing in and surrender them to God and ask God, I want transformation in my life. I want to pursue that spirit-born fruit in my life. This is what Paul would end this passage with when he says, if we in fact live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's go where he's going. Let's do what he's doing. Let's learn from what he's teaching us. If there's a blind spot in our life, let's address it. And we're able to do that because of the gospel. That when a person is, is saved, when you're born again, your heart is literally, your, your inner life is changed. Again, we're not talking about this uh, transaction, like you, you get a certain amount of knowledge, you go to church enough times and you're a Christian. Being born again is a change on the inside. And the Bible teaches that when you are saved, you, you, you get this union with Christ. That means you now have union with his spirit. That means he's in you and he's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's good news. And so we can surrender that which is weak in our lives and say, Lord, help me to change this. The third thing that we can do is to train for Christ-likeness. Actually look intentionally for ways that we can grow. That's why I think the wilderness is such a good training ground, because our flesh is constantly being challenged. And what we did for Lent as a church is we intentionally placed ourselves in a Lent environment, or excuse me, in a wilderness environment. I'm going to take away this so that I can uh, lay hold of that. And even though Lent is about to be over, the Christian life is to continue to press into that process and abide in Christ as he brings the growth. Sometimes wilderness seasons will come without you ever asking. It'll be in the form of an illness, a setback, a relational conflict. And in those moments, we can look to, to heaven, look to our God and say, what are you wanting to accomplish in my life? This is a difficult situation, but I know you want to do something powerful in it. How do you want to change me through it? And we train. You know how you train for something? You, you intentionally put yourself in an environment where you meet resistance. Uh, for the, the last five weeks, I wanted to do that as we were doing that as a church. And I took away two things from my life. One was a food product. The other was all social media uh, and news. And I recognized almost early on what God was doing. I was training as we were training. On that first day, took off the apps on my phone, didn't have any of those things. And the first day, this is like Sunday night after I taught the sermon. I go and I sit down in my chair and I pull my phone out and there's, there's no apps on there. And I'm like, oh, 
I'm just flipping. I don't know what I'm flipping. I'm just flipping. And there's nothing there to flip. And I find myself going to my, my email inbox to look for something. It's a zero. I try to keep it at zero. And so I'm looking at my zeroed inbox, just, just flicking the, the screen, hoping that someone will email me, right? I'm just doing it. Sunday night. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And at that moment, I realized something. God was poking a part of my life. He was saying, you have no peace. You can't sit still for a minute without, seeing what, without uh, uh, devouring knowledge. You can't sit for a minute without being productive. You can't just sit. And in that moment, I dropped my phone, got on my knees before God, and I said, thank you. Five weeks later, I can't tell you I am a peaceful human being, but I can tell you I am more peaceful than I was five weeks ago. You can do that too. God is working in your lives. And so we train for it. We put ourselves intentionally in places of resistance, asking God, please develop this element of the fruit of the Spirit in me. Are you lacking patience? Here's a great way for you to train. Well, the next time you go to the grocery store, pick the longest line and get in it. (laughs) Don't look at your phone. Don't look at the ground. Open your eyes and say, God, what do you want to do? Maybe you'll start up a conversation. Maybe God will just whisper his love your way. But in that regular, ordinary, mundane moment, God will start to develop the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Or you're driving on the way to work, drive in the slow lane. Oh. On the way to Carpinteria, to your job. Drive in the slow lane. And as you're driving in the slow lane, say, God, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to meet this resistance because I'm lacking patience or I'm lacking whatever it is I want you to train. Find the area of weakness and find a way to resist that weakness. And in doing so, ask the Lord, teach me, train me, help me to abide. I'm going to ask the, uh, Robert and the rest of the team to come out as we sing. And as we do it, let this exhortation by Paul be our desire together as a church. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As we sing and respond, there's uh, different ways to do that. You can sing, you can stand, you can sit, you can lift your hands as a physical expression of worship. You can get on your face on the carpets and carve out a little solitude before God. There's uh, the bread and the cup. For those who have made a decision to follow Christ, you can dip the bread into the cup and to reattach your faith to where it truly is supposed to lie in Christ. There's prayer teams that will be to both sides. We'd love to pray for breakthrough in this area in your life. Where are the weak spots? Let's, let's pray for that. But whatever it is that your, uh, your response is, Let's press in to the person and power of Jesus Christ and to abide in him. For he is the one who said, all who abide in me, they shall bear fruit. The best thing you could do this morning is to press back into Jesus. I don't care where you are today. If you've been estranged from God for years, this is your first time back in a church. There's always a time to start fresh. Maybe that's the time for you today. Let's enter into his courtroom and his presence with thanksgiving and praise and receive from him the nourishment that our souls need. In Jesus' name.